Well, good morning. Welcome. If you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 16, we'll be looking at most of the passage today, uh, just three main sections, but it'll be an overview of what's known as the Day of Atonement. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 5, 15 to 22, and 29 to 34. We're continuing our series called Five on Five, where we've been looking at the first five books of the Bible and getting five lessons from each of those books. Uh, This sermon is entitled, A Lesson in Atonement. And if you are able, would you please rise for the reading of God's word? We rise out of respect and reverence and honor toward the Lord as he speaks to us from his word today. Now here, God speak, Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time to the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bowl from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Skipping down to verses 15 to 22. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself, for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess it over all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Finally, verses 29 to 34. And that shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did 
as the Lord commanded. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your truth, for your goodness. We pray that as we hear you speak to us from Leviticus chapter 16 about this system that you set up for your people in Israel, that we would see just a glimpse, a beauty, a picture of the greater sacrifice in Jesus Christ, your son. We pray that this would be clear, um, that you would, by your spirit, convict our hearts and see uh, the beauty of your plan of redemption throughout all of history. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Every so often, when I go to pump gas into my car, I'll end up stepping into a, a little puddle in front of the machine. And when I look down, uh, I see that familiar discoloration that you've probably seen before. It looks kind of like a rainbow, kind of oily, maybe some gas. And I realize that I've stepped into the worst thing I could have stepped in. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll get out making sure that uh, I, I avoid that situation, but other times I'm, I'm distracted by what's going on. And so I managed to get out and end up splashing into this disgusting puddle. And I'm sure this has probably happened to many of you, uh, maybe someone you've known or someone you've heard about, but we all know that it's the worst. The smell of gasoline is extremely strong and it cuts through just about <clears throat> anything. I remember when I was first learning to drive, first starting, uh, and this would happen to me, I would try to find something, anything I could in the back of my car, whether it was a, a can of uh, sunscreen or maybe a bottle of Febreze. Uh, I tried cologne. I tried my coffee one time. Literally, I tried everything. And the only thing that would happen is that it would get worse. I mean, the chemicals of the Febreze and the sunscreen and the cologne mixed with the gas just ended up becoming this terrible concoction that probably could be classified as a weapon of warfare or something. It was terrible. Uh, but the point is the smell of gas cut through all of that. It stuck with me for a long time. Now, of course, eventually the smell of gas goes away. But for the time that it is with you, it's in the car, it's unbearable. It festers in your car. It gets in the carpeting. It makes you lightheaded. It gives you a headache. You open up the windows and it just comes right back around and hits you back in the face. It makes you want to throw up and there's, there's nothing you can do to get rid of the smell. It just takes time, no matter how hard you try. And friends, this is the reality of sin and impurity. The Bible describes the stench of sin as a defiling dishonor to the house of God, which affects anything and everything it comes into contact with. Even sin, which you mindlessly do or you unintentionally do, becomes like this festering smell. The difference, though, between gasoline and sin is that the stench of gas will go away over time. But sin, if left unattended, will only continue to grow in its defilement. It's spreading, it's sticking to everything, and it's smell. And this is what today's passage is about. The impurity and destruction of Israel's sin was evident, and it defiled everything it came across. And it's because of this sin that they were not able to be in the presence of God, nor could they even remain encamped around him if nothing was done about their sin. And so because of this, the Lord had to provide a way for Israel to atone and purify themselves so that they would not be destroyed. So here is the main point to our sermon this morning. 
Because of our sin and impurity, we were forsaken. But because of Jesus's atonement and cleansing, we are forgiven. Let me say that again. Because of our sin and impurity, we were forsaken. But because of Jesus's atonement and cleansing, we are forgiven. So let's look how this plays out in our passage uh, with our first point, God's presence is powerful. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Andrew preached on Leviticus chapter 10 about God's holiness. And in that passage, we saw the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who were priests, who were destroyed by the Lord because they drew near to him in an unauthorized way. They offered up a strange incense and approached him not according to what he said was right, but according to what they thought was good. Now we see here in Leviticus 16 that this chapter begins where that story ends. We see in verse 1, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, the Lord speaks to Moses immediately after. And this may be drawing to us because you know, there are four other chapters between Leviticus 10, or there's a couple other chapters between Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 16. And when we read chapters 11, 15, though, is, is not other events happening between that and now, but just a list of all the things that would make someone unclean or unfit to be in the presence of God. They couldn't just walk up to the veil in the tabernacle, pull on a little rope, it opens up, you know, hello, God, are you home? What's up? They don't just drop in whenever they want. They can't just approach God with what they want to do. And we see that in chapters 10 to 15. There's so many ways that an Israelite could be considered unclean or unfit to be in the presence of God. And so the question was, well, if there's so many ways we can't approach God, how do we approach God? Will we ever be able to come into his presence? And this is what Leviticus 16, and really the whole book of Leviticus, but especially this chapter, aims to answer. So we see a little bit further in verses 3 to 5, or 2 to 5, that there are three ways or three requirements for how Aaron was to approach God. First, he was not to enter the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat at any time, except for, we'll find out, once a year. Not only was he was restricted to only coming into God's presence once a year, but also the Lord covered himself in a cloud of smoke in order to protect Aaron from his holiness. And so Aaron could not even be in the full presence of God. It had to be veiled in order to protect him. Second, he was to bring a certain set of animals for specific rituals. We see in verses 3 and 5 that Aaron was to bring a bull and a ram to offer for his sins and the priest's sins. And then he was to bring two male goats and one ram for the people of Israel. Now, there are reasons why the bull is chosen and the ram is chosen. You can read that in the earlier chapters of Leviticus. But the important thing is that he has to bring a certain set of animals for specific rituals so that their sins could be atoned for and the place could be cleansed to be in God's presence. And finally, he was to dress in a certain way. We see in verse 4, he was to dress head to toe in bare linen clothing, a linen coat, a turban, undergarment, sash, all these things. And here, we have an interesting point. Why would Aaron, the high priest, have to change into a certain kind of plain linen clothing? 
Well, it's because normally, if you've been reading through Genesis or Exodus, or you remember anything about the establishment of the high priest, is that he would be wearing extremely ornate and special clothing. There were jewels and gold and very large hats that he would wear. And it signified his authority, his holiness in relation to the people of Israel and the respect that he deserved from Israel as mediator between them and God. And so he had a unique role, so he needed unique clothing. But now on the day of atonement, when he's coming into the presence of God, he is commanded to dress in plain clothing. We can almost think dressed like a servant, like a slave, humble, stripped of all honor. This is not because the high priest was no longer the mediator for Israel, but because in sight of God's holiness, he is just another servant to the king of kings. This would have been so counter to what the Israelites would have thought about the high priest. Look, he's so holy. Look, his clothes are so extravagant. He should be the one who should be able to go in all of his glory before the Lord. This is probably what brought him into being high priest in the first place. And I wonder how many of you desire to approach the Lord through your achievements, through what you have, through what you bring. Somehow we've gone into our heads that in order to be before the Lord, you must prove yourselves worthy or that you have something good to offer, something good to bring to God. You know, some of you bring your degrees. Look, I am a doctor. Look, I am a Westminster student. I have an engineering degree. Some of you point to your kids. Look, Lord, my kids are doing so well. They're achieving in school or in life. Look at how well I've done as a parent. Some of you point to your sports or athletics or how strong you are or what you're able to physically do. Others point to money or their work or their house or even how good of a person they are. Look, I do all these good things. All of this in hopes that you would be able to be holy enough or good enough to be before the Lord. But here in this passage, We don't see that the Lord is impressed with what's going on, with what you have, with your achievements, with what you wear. There's nothing in you that you can bring that would give a leg up for the door to open just a little bit more. Even the high priest, the so-called holiest guy in the camp, the one with the most honor in all of Israel is stripped of everything before the Lord. And he's the only one who can go into God's presence. So if the high priest is stripped of all honor and he's the only one who can go, what does that mean for you, for the Israelite? Friends, let's not fool ourselves into thinking there is anything good in what we do in ourselves to merit or bring ourselves before the presence of God. But why is this? Why can't we bring anything before God to, you know, have a ticket as our way in? was because we see in Leviticus, God is holy and his holiness destroys anything which is not fit to be in his presence. This is why Nadab and Abihu died. The sheer power and glory of God's holiness is in complete aversion to even the smallest of sin, the smallest impurity. Last summer, Jenny and I took a trip to California to visit her family. And while we were on our trip, I wanted to see some of the landscapes of California, maybe some of the national parks. And so we ended up going to Joshua Tree, which is this sort of very large 
deserty region in California, which is mostly known for these plants that apparently looked like the prophet Joshua praying, which is why it's called Joshua tree. And so these plants are interspersed everywhere through the rock formations, these large mountains and rocks you can climb on, and these vast stretches of dirt and road and sort of little shrubs and bushes and these great big valleys. I mean, it was beautiful. I was, we were in awe of how God created these landscapes, his handiwork in all of it. But while we were there, it just so happened to be that we were out at the hottest part of the day around 1 to 3 p.m. Uh, but also, apparently, I remember uh, that that day was, I think, the hottest it ever has been in a couple of years. Or maybe the hottest it ever was on planet Earth, or at least that's what it felt like. I mean, it was, I think, actually between 105 and 110 degrees but it felt like 500 or 600. I was boiling. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because I'm, you know, from the Northeast and anything above 75 is hot. I mean, I know I'm sweating already. I'm wearing short sleeves, but you know, it was hot. It was actually hot. And I learned something new about the kind of really oppressive heat that I've never felt before. You know, when you're out in the afternoon sun in a desert, climbing rock formations, uh, and the heat is bearing down near. There's no shade. It's, it's almost too much to bear. To me, someone who isn't used to that kind of heat, it felt like there was this pressure around me. I could feel the heat in my lungs as I breathed in. Like I couldn't catch my breath. Like the heat was keeping the wind out of my lungs. The air was so dry and so hot that I felt like my mouth was literally evaporating off of my body. The water, I think, was disappearing from my hands without me even drinking it. And I felt like I was being compressed and that with every step I took, I was getting closer to passing out. I wanted to just run to the AC in the car and drive as fast and as far away as possible. But Jenny was out running around in the desert, having the time of her life, seeing how fun it is while her husband is crawling away behind her and she's just taking pictures and look how beautiful it is. The point is the heat was unbearable. It literally made me stop in my tracks. And this is what I imagine being close to God's holiness must feel like as an unclean person. It's oppressive in the sight of sin. When we come face to face with his holiness, we feel this dread. We feel this fear, a desire to run away, to turn around, to go back to where we came from. I can imagine Aaron walking in through the veil into the cloud as he passes the angels embroidered on the veil, standing in the presence of God and having the wind sucked out of his lungs. The time stops and he freezes in place, recognizing his impurity, his uncleanness with just a glimpse of God's holiness. I mean, look at what happened to Nadab and Abihu in their sinfulness as they entered in the presence of God. What happened? Really, Leviticus 10, they were burnt up instantly. A fire came from before the Lord because of their sin. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. And so the Lord instructs Aaron how to be in his presence, even for a moment that he may atone for the sins of himself, the priests and Israel, that they may not die. So now let's look at what has to happen because of sin in the sight of our holy God. In our second point, our sin is pervasive. 
We see that because of sin and impurity, Aaron has to sacrifice animals. And he has to do it twice. We didn't read it, but in verses 11 to 16, we see that he has to sacrifice a bull to cleanse the tent for his own sins and the sins of the priest. And then secondly, in verses 15 and 19, which we did read, he has to do the same thing with the goats and the rams for the people of Israel. And so he has to sacrifice these animals and spill their blood all over the tent twice. The question is, what is he doing with the blood? Why is the blood necessary? Well, one, first he has to sprinkle the blood on the atonement cover or the mercy seat, which is where uh, the atonement was made for, and in front of it seven times. He then has to walk outside of the veil, just outside, uh, and sprinkle the blood on the holy place, the altar there, and also in front of that altar seven times. And finally, he has to move outward to the outermost place outside the tent where Israelites could come and sacrifice animals daily, doing the same thing there that he did inside of the tent. And so he had to do this twice, once for him and the priests, and then once again for the Israelites. Now, I don't want to be too graphic, but think of what is going on here. I mean, Leviticus 16 is putting it out to bear. These animals are being sacrificed and their blood is being spilt all over the tent. Anywhere someone may have touched, anywhere someone could have touched, anywhere someone thought of touching, it had to be cleansed because they were unclean. The blood had to be sprinkled seven times, the number of perfection in each place because it required perfect cleansing. And every time an animal was sacrificed, the Israelites would have looked at this animal on the altar and thought, that should have been me. I should be on that altar. I am the one who deserves this punishment. And this is the reality of our sin. It says so in verse 16. The animals are dying because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all of their sins. The little lambs and the goats, the rams, the bulls, all innocent, all just animals have to die because of Israel's sin, because of the priest's sins. And we even know this today to be true as those who have the New Testament, that the wages of sin is death. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, and makes it clear that anyone who sins, any one sin, the wages of sin is death. And why is this? Because sin is rebellion against God. It is idolatry. It is a revolt against his holiness, his law. No matter if it's intentional or unintentional, an accident, a mistake, the payment for sin and impurity must be death. And so Aaron has to atone and purify each place in the tabernacle twice. And you think, well, that's good. I mean, the atonement is done. It's been cleansed. Uh, the, bull, the animals have been sacrificed. And so that must be the end, right? That, that's it. That's all you need. Well, no, if you keep reading, this is not the last part of the atonement and cleansing. After having addressed the impurity and sin which defiled God's dwelling place, his house in, amongst the Israelites, now the Lord turns and faces his focus in instructing Aaron how to deal with the Israelites where they encamp their homes. 
The first thing we see is that in verse 21, after making atonement for the holy place, is to confess the sins of Israel over this goat. Remember, there were two goats. One that was sacrificed, and this one was chosen by lots to have this happen to him. And so the sins are confessed over this goat. And then in verse 22, we see that the goat is to bear all iniquities on itself. This was a very public removal of this lethal substance, this deathly sin from the camp, which would have been uh, in view of all the Israelites. Just like the altar where the animals were being sacrificed, this goat would have been visible to all the Israelites in the camp. They would have been able to see what was going on and recognize that this animal, this innocent goat was a representative for them. It's very important to notice the language of verse 21 because it says that Aaron would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess all the sins onto it. Laying their hands on the head of the goat means that this goat was now fully responsible for the sin. The guilt was transferred from Israel to this goat. This goat was to be devoted to destruction, to desolation, to the wilderness. And he is bearing all the sin, all the guilt, all the iniquities of Israel on their behalf. And this is made even more clear. This, uh, this, this is made clear in that the goat in verse 22 is cut off from the Israelite camp and is sent off into the wilderness. So we know that the consequences of being cut off was that one could not worship at the temple, could not take part in Israelite life, and could not come before the Lord. And so this goat was cut off from the Lord, from Israel, to take the punishment of being separated from God into the wilderness. All of the sin and guilt is transferred to the goat, and he walks out from the altar through the camp, past all the Israelites as they watch it go by into the wilderness, as he disappears into sight. I mean, imagine what that would have felt like. What if today we had the same sort of ritual where someone brought a goat up here to stand with the elders as we announced each and every sin of those in Cornerstone? You can imagine the elders laying their hands on the goat's head and we would begin confessing all of your lying, your cheating, your lustful looks, your laziness in prayer, your pride, your greed, your sarcasm, your arguments, your hate towards your brother, your disrespecting of your parents, your losing your temper at your kids, your cutthroat actions at work. And then after all that confessing, the goat walks down these stairs out to the front of the church into Lansdale near the train tracks or something. And you see, as this goat walks past, that all of your sins, your dirty laundry confessed on his head. Imagine what that would feel like, this weight being lifted off. Imagine what that would have felt like for the Israelites. You can imagine something like after a long winter with the salt and rock and snow and ice building up on the car. And you know when that first rain or that first spring rain comes and washes it all away. It's like a breath of fresh air. <sighs> Freedom, I can breathe. This is gone. 
Or maybe like when you've been avoiding to take out the trash and recycling for too long and it keeps piling up, falling out of the trash bin, you're putting soda cans on top of the fridge, you're hiding them in places and they're stacked up everywhere and you come home to see that someone has cleaned it out and it's empty, it's clean, it smells good, there's no flies and there's just, ah, thank goodness, that's gone. It's a sigh of relief. This is what the Day of Atonement was for. All that sin that was piling up during the year, even after all these daily sacrifices were being made, these sacrifices were not enough. Now, of course, that's all well and good, but as we've already seen, or maybe have felt, the Day of Atonement was imperfect. We see in verses 29 to 34 that it was to be a lasting ordinance, a statute to you forever. We see that it was something to be repeated once per year. It was given a month. It was given a day. And even while it was to be a day of Sabbath rest, where no Israelite or foreigner living in the land was to work, they were always thinking about how the next year they would have to do it all over again. It was still looming in the distance, their sin, their impurity, their uncleanness still hanging over their head, even as they are doing these sacrifices. I mean, verse 32 to 34, I don't have a slide, but it mentions atonement five times, showing the importance and the result of this day for the people of Israel. And yet it was to be repeated. I imagine some of you feel like that. Like you constantly have to tidy yourselves or make yourselves look good to the world or make yourselves presentable before God. I'm sure you feel tired. It's so tiring and exhausting to keep up day after day, year after year, trying to stay clean. And you know you don't get it all. In the deepest parts of your hearts, sin still lurks. The cobwebs of these small sins lurking are still there. The secret thoughts you think no one else can see keep you from being fully clean. You feel it. Though you may not say it out loud, it is a reality and you feel dirty, impure, sinful, unclean. This was the life of the Israelite in the presence of their holy God. It cannot be stressed enough that while this was a good system, it was not the best system. It got over the problem of sin and separation from God, but it was only temporary. They needed something better. We need something better. Aaron had to sacrifice for himself first before he could sacrifice for the people of Israel. Though high priest, though holy, though respected, he was sinful. He was unclean. Not only did he have to sacrifice for himself, he had to offer multiple sacrifices. One just was not enough to cover for the totality of sin and uncleanness for the people of Israel. Not only year after year did they have to do this, but day after day, the sacrifices had to be repeated. The blood had to be reapplied. The cleansing needed to be done again and again. And Aaron, the sinful high priest, was the only one who could go into the presence of God which was still veiled by a cloud. He could not see God face to face. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, he could not stay. After he did his work, he had to turn around instantly. He could not enjoy fellowship with the Lord. I mean, this is not good enough. We know that. When we go to meet 
someone respectful, like the president. We don't want to just hear about the visit on our behalf, but we actually want to see him face to face. We want to know him. We want to speak to him. We don't want to be represented, but we want to be present ourselves. So you see that though this day of atonement was better than any other system they had, it still wasn't enough. There was still the problem of sin and separation from God. And so the Israelites needed a perfect high priest who lives eternally and offers a sacrifice once for all. And we who live on this side of the cross know someone like that. So let's jump many years to see that perfect high priest the Israelites longed for in our last point. Jesus's atonement is payment. And when we jump ahead 1,400 years from the establishment of the Day of Atonement, we are met with a sight of a man hanging from a wooden cross, nailed and stripped of all his honor, all his worth. This man on the cross, as he is being nailed and lifted up, prays for the ones doing this against him, for they know not what they do. The soldiers cast lots for his clothes, just like how the goat for sacrifice was chosen by lots. And then all of a sudden the sky turns dark and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we see the glimmer of a scapegoat, of a goat sent off and cut off into the wilderness. When he dies, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom, opening up the way between the holy of holies and the rest of the world. The presence of God was no longer hid behind a curtain. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, this man prays for those who beat him, revile him, mock him, betray him. He is cut off from his father, just like the goat was, and he dies alone, scorned by the ones he came to save. Friends, this is the fulfillment of the day of atonement. This is what the Israelites looked forward to as they listened to prophecies like Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant who would bear the iniquities of God's people. But Jesus, unlike Aaron, was not sinful. He lived the perfectly obedient life, which we all could not do and cannot do, so that he could fully and finally atone for our sin once for all. Hebrews 9.24 says that for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Unlike Aaron, he doesn't enter into an earthly thing made by human hands. He enters into the very sanctuary, the very holy place of God on our behalf. And what does he do? Does he turn around as soon as he gets there? As soon as he presents himself? No. He seats and is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne. Unlike Aaron, he can stay. He doesn't have to leave the presence of God. Because of his blood spilt for us, we no longer have to hear about God from some distant person, some high priest on our behalf, but we ourselves can go into his very presence because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Just like those animals the Israelites would have looked at being killed on their behalf, we look at Jesus and say, that should have been me. I should be the one on that cross. I deserve that punishment. No. Jesus, on our behalf, who died in our place, though we say we should be on that cross, 
The father looks at us and says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't see us. He sees his perfect, obedient, holy, righteous son. And so as we close, I'd like to leave us with just one application as we think about the implications for this. For if you believe that Christ died for you on the cross and that you've been truly forgiven, then your lives will look radically different than they did before because you have received the greatest forgiveness you are able to forgive those who hurt you. Because you've received far greater than you could ever imagine, you are able to extend mercy, love, kindness, grace to others who you would think don't deserve it. How could those, how could they not receive forgiveness from someone who did not deserve it to begin with, who was given forgiveness, who was given love, who was given kindness, who was given grace and mercy, not by anything they have done, but all because of someone else, Jesus Christ. How could we not forgive those when we, the chief of sinners, have been forgiven? Now, of course, this doesn't remove the pain and sorrow and hurt that comes from, from this. Though you forgive the one who hurt you, it doesn't make the memory instantly go away. But what you may find as you continue to forgive, extend mercy, and love graciously those who have scorned you, hurt you, belittled you, abandoned you, mocked you, is that the pain goes away little by little each time. I can imagine that each time you forgive, there's like a bandage with medicine being placed on the wound, this fresh healing, this fresh ointment. And with each passing year, living in the light of Christ's forgiveness, extending it to those in society who would be thrown away in an instant, the wound shrinks. It heals. You may not notice it in the moment. It may not be recognizable even over five years. But when you look back and you see how the Holy Spirit works in you to reconcile and redeem even the greatest hurts, you can see that it's true. And what an amazing truth that is, that we are able to forgive freely because we have been forgiven fully. If you're not convinced by my words, let me read 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25 for us in closing. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because of our sin and impurity, we were forsaken, but because of Jesus's atonement and cleansing, we are forgiven. Let's pray.